welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. This week, Tarun and I chat with Sunny and Dave all about osmosis. Osmosis is a Cosmos zone slash DEX that uses IBC to allow enabled assets to be traded, pooled, and staked. We talk about their journey to osmosis, what this means for the Cosmos hub, and how they aim to provide an MEV solution that differs from the one proposed by the Flashbots team. Wanted to quickly highlight that the ZK Validator, the project running validators on some key L1 POS networks, is also now running on osmosis. I didn't get a chance to mention this at the time of recording, as we hadn't yet confirmed that we were going ahead with it, but I did want to let you know now that the ZK Validator is live on Osmosis. We are powered by our new staking partner, Course One, and so if you're thinking of staking your Osmo, you can find us in the Osmosis staking interface. Now, I want to thank this week's sponsor, Least Authority. Least Authority is a leader in the security of distributed systems. They provide security consulting services, develop open source products, and contribute to the advancement of learning and research in the field. In addition to their recent security reviews of innovative projects such as Chia Network, Mina, and Bender Labs Wrap Protocol, they will soon be releasing a white paper on ZCAPs, or Zero Knowledge Access Passes. ZCAPs is an anonymous token-based authorization protocol that facilitates an online exchange of value while disconnecting the necessary payment data from the day-to-day usage service data of customers. They have adapted the privacy pass design and implemented this for something called private storage, a soon-to-be-launched cloud storage service designed with privacy and security features to give you control over who has access to your data. If you'd like to be notified of the ZCAPS white paper and the latest security research projects, sign up for their monthly newsletter at leastauthority.com newsletter. So thank you again, Least Authority. Now here is our Osmos interview with Sunny and Dave. So today I want to welcome Dave and Sunny to the show to talk to Tarun and I about osmosis. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks for having us on again. Thanks. Pleasure being back on. Yeah. And it's funny because like you've both been on the show, but you've been on completely different episodes. Um, This is the first time that you're actually here together. I had Sunny on first, I believe. And we did an episode way back where you shared with me an introduction to Cosmos. I think it was the first episode we did on Cosmos, actually. And then... Dave, you came on the show for a deep ZK episode where we looked at Fractal. Mm-hmm. I think actually maybe the first time we did it was at ETCC like two or three years ago. Remember you were doing those governance like... The combo ones. Yes. That, that one was so oh, much that's fun. I true. Loved. Okay. Oh, so it's your third time on. Cool. <laughs> I guess technically, yeah. That was that was <laughs> one of my favorite like interviews I've done because you just had like such cool questions about governance. I remember you were talking about like Cosmos is the United Nations or the... Yeah. Is it the United Nations? You had this like interesting <laughs> metaphor going on I, there. <laughs> yeah. I think, I, I think it, it was Cosmos was NATO or something and yeah. something like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you still believe this analogy? Uh, like a couple years later? Yeah, I think so. I, I, specifically, it was about the Cosmos Hub. Like everything that does shared security with the Cosmos Hub is NATO, and the Cosmos Hub is like the US, who's just like helping everyone everyone else out. And it's, but it's more voluntary. It's not this like thing that's like you are not allowed to leave. 
Why was that asking? Because what happens in a pandemic in this analogy? Like, do all the Cosmos chains start fighting for validators with each other? Uh, maybe. Fix validators, know. fix vaccines. <laughs> like, so I, you know, you've both been on. I want to hear from both of you what what you've been up to since those interviews and maybe how the Cosmos ecosystem has also changed and your roles in it have also changed. So, Sunny, why don't we start off with you? What have you been up to? What's what's new in Cosmos? Yeah, sure. So I guess we did that maybe two years ago. So since then, so that was after the launch of the Cosmos Hub and everything. So, you know, we don't have to talk about that. I think what happened was most of 2019 was really spent working on like getting IBC uh, up and mm-hmm. up, or most of 2020, sorry, was spent on getting like IBC up and running and like Stargate, which was this like huge upgrade to like the Cosmos SDK and like the Cosmos SDK V1 was this like, you know, it, it worked well for like launching this thing, but it's like, we, we needed to like basically build this like V2 where like, okay, we had these like weird encoding structures in the first one and certain things were just very mm-hmm. unintuitive. Yeah. I actually did a whole episode on the Stargate upgrade <laughs> from like four different perspectives. And we, we heard a lot about that. I'm going to add the link to that in the show notes. Oh, perfect. Um, but yeah. So you were part of that. That's actually, I was curious, like how, how active were you during that thing? Were you already starting to work on osmosis then, or were you focused primarily on Stargate? I was helping a little bit on the Stargate side, but not, yeah, it wasn't really my main focus. So what happened was you probably heard about what we like to call Gore 2020, which is the Cosmos ecosystem's great organizational restructuring of early 2020. <laughs> Gore. <laughs> Gore 2020. I never heard that. Okay. <laughs> cool. Uh, basically, yeah, I mean, we had like, you know, what happened was, everyone was working in this like one company called Tendermint. And mm-hmm. then in early 2020, we basically all, basically everyone or not everyone, you know, the t- Tendermint company is still there, but then a lot of people sort of left the Tendermint company and started working on other things, like creating new companies to contribute back to Cosmos. And, like, you know, what's really interesting was, it was nice to see that like no one left the Cosmos ecosystem, as far as I can tell, like everyone's still working on Cosmos, but like, you know, the Zaki went and like started working on through his founded a company called Occlusion. And now they're building a product. Uh, you have like uh, a lot of, like Chris and like a lot, a lot of people, they went to like the Interchain Foundation and was working on Stargate from there. And so, yeah, Dave and I sort of, you know, we already had this validator that we were running for a long time. And I think we talked about that last time. And so we're like, all right, let's just Sika. like, yeah. yeah. And so we're like, all right, let's just like, you know, run this validator and, you know, we'll do some, a little bit of open source development, just like contributing back to the Cosmos SDK in the meanwhile. And then as we got into it, we're like, we realized, you know, running validators just isn't super fun. At least it's not for us. Like, you know, I, I know there's some people who really enjoy it, but, you know, I think we're just more, we wanted to build something. You know, I started working a lot with like the Flashbots team very early on. So like maybe like last summer, basically, they got me really excited about like MEV and stuff. And I'm like, wow, this is such a huge issue. And then they like told me their solution. I'm like, guys, that's not a solution. You're making the problem worse. <laughs> You're like productionizing the like, the extraction of MEV. And it's like, no, no, no. Okay. So then I went back, we went back to Dave and I was like, all right, let's figure out how to like, you know, they're going to make this problem even worse. Let's figure out how to solve it. And so we spent some time trying to like figure out how to reduce the MEV. And like, we, we came up with a pretty good solution and we started building it. And then along the way that we were like, okay, this is a really cool feature. It needs a product. 
Uh, and mm-hmm. so that's sort of how Osmosis came about, where we sort of merged with a company called Chainapsis. They, they built the Kepler wallet, which is like the most popular wallet of the Cosmos ecosystem. And they actually built basically the base of what Osmosis code base is today uh, at a hackathon like last year. And, and you know, Josh's was a really close friend. You know, we worked together at Tendermint for a while. And, you know, he's, he's been in the Cosmos ecosystem probably as long as I have, actually. So he, we sort of merged forces with them and we're like, all right, let's launch this Osmosis thing and then use it as a vehicle to like add in all this like front running resistance and privacy and all this kind of stuff we want to add on. Cool, cool. I want to I wanna dig into osmosis really soon, but I want to also hear from you, Dave. Like, what has your trajectory been? Because last time we spoke, you were like deep in ZK world. And I know you were also running Sika at the same time, but like, what was your journey to this? Yeah. So I think the last time we talked, uh, I was still running a Sika as a validator, but back then it was, it was still kind of passive where we just help uh, with some, you know, cause SDK or tenement designs. Because, you know, a lot of the things are, like, Sunny and I had a core part of like building a lot of the infrastructure that's decay tenement. So then we provide advice on new designs there. But I was mostly focused on like finishing college and doing like recursive snark research. So we talked, talked to work on Fractal. And since then I was helping out with kind of building this the Arcworks Rust ecosystem. You had a oh cool. You had a podcast with Partouche the other day or yeah. know, maybe a couple months back. A few months ago, yeah. <laughs> cool. And so I was helping out with that and uh, you know trying to build up the ecosystem in addition to working on recursive snarks. Then sometime like Mid 2020, like Sunny comes to me and is like, MEV, what do? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> was there was there a moment in there where you were also looking at ZK stuff in the context of Osmosis or whatever this project was? Because I vaguely remember us talking about that. Yeah. So I think the initial dream of this was like, let's figure out how to make a, a zero knowledge DEX or like, what's the most best way to get a, a DEX that's very privacy preserving? And we're like, okay, well, the sort of dream of literally not, no information about trades is public, doesn't really work out. But how about this? How about we have everyone, uh, you can hide who is doing a trade, but the actual trade list of trades are still public. Yeah. And we could do this, like, we figured out a way to front, front running and uh, like these ordering issues. And then basically we ended up t- just talking to people who uh, about this and they were all like, uh, okay, this front running thing is very cool. Like we want you that today in Ethereum. <laughs> Privacy is like, yeah, interesting, but like not a today problem. <laughs> Man, this is so the problem of what I feel like we face this constantly. And it's it's totally economic and it makes total sense. Like there is a reason why there's priority given to some of these problems. But we've talked about this so often on the show. Like if privacy isn't baked in at the beginning, it's super hard to, to add later. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to leave hope that like, you will revisit it because I know that you've gone further with the MEV, but Dave, I know that you have a deep background in zero knowledge stuff. So I'm hoping you'll bring it back in at some yeah, point. Yeah. I, I think the dream is, or my current <laughs> dream is like, there's this idea of having this, uh, I know some projects are trying to have, you know, computation kind of done off chain and have that computation be private. This is kind of like the Zexy model. Well, and I feel like what might actually end up being what happens is, you still have the code be public and like some public input to the code, but you just, you're fully blind who's doing things. Like you break this mm-hmm. linking. And I think that's kind of the dream we, we, I have for like what, what happens in osmosis as well. Like we make a ways so that, you know, maybe all these actions are public, but who's doing it and ways to link actions other than like kind of metadata or like side channel leakage of trying to figure out your strategies. Uh, ignoring those, you can't really link these together. Got it. So I think we're we're at the point where we should really introduce osmosis because we're now mentioning it a couple times. 
What is osmosis? I've played with it. I think it's really exciting, but tell me exactly what it is and what people can do with it. Yeah, sure. So osmosis is a DEX that we've built on the Cosmos ecosystem. Um, Mm -hmm. Currently, so this V1 that we launched is... I would say it's basically mo- most inspired by like balancer. We the, the hackathon project that was created like a year ago that was basically taking the balancer code base and putting it onto the Cosmos SDK. Okay. Yeah, and so you know, I mean, I think that balancer has the most Cosmos esque mindset of all the AMMs, or at least at the time it did. And what that means is, you know, we, Cosmos the mindset is just about like, okay, you know, everyone can spin up their own zones and like, you know, they'll have, have their own governance and like. You know, they'll they'll compete and like the market will figure out which ones work. I think balancers are very similar idea, but applied to AMMs, right? It's like, all right, you know, give you as much flexibility as you want. All right, go make weird weighted pools, go make like multi-facet pools. And like you can have multiple pools with the same pairs and like this, the market will figure out which ones work out or not. And so that's why we were, you know, we were just the most drawn to balancer. And so we took that code base and then we started, you know, just adding in ideas from other protocols as well. Like, you know, we really like the bonded liquidity that uh, Curve tries to do. And so, you know, we integrated things from that. We, we mm. took a lot of inspiration from like Sushi's token design and stuff and how they do like, you know, liquidity incentives. So we added that on. So yeah, we just took them a bunch of ideas from different protocols on Ethereum and like, okay, let's bring this to Cosmos. Let's launch this because Cosmos needs DeFi like na- like now. Yesterday. And then, Yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> but and and th- and then yeah now and now we have it and now it's now this mm-hmm. is going to be a platform for us to start iterating and like adding in all of these new features that we're talking about. Is Osmosis a standalone blockchain? Is it a zone? Like, let's talk about how it connects into the Cosmos ecosystem. Okay, sure. Uh, so it is its own independent, like L one, and mm-hmm. in Cosmos, uh, kind of the popularized way of is like you have this multi chain world where every chain can talk to one another via this protocol called IBC. Yeah, TLDR is like you kind of just have both chains use light clients to one another. You say, okay, well, I trust your consensus is good. So I'm, if I get a light client proof and of a finalized state, we can transfer assets back and forth. So we use this to connect to every other Cosmos zone who has this uh, enabled. Mm-hmm. And so assets can flow in and out of Osmosis via IBC. And then you can, you can trade on Osmosis and uh, move things back out. And one of the things that Osmosis, I believe, unlocks, and m- maybe there's another project that did it, but at least for me, it was the first time that atoms could be like automatically trade like within like a cosmos product actually traded for other caught like cosmos network or cosmos ecosystem tokens it's the first time that i see that the first time that it at least becomes very easy without a centralized exchange is that the first project or was there anything like it before yeah, it's basically the first project that does that, uh, first IBC enabled DEX. And part of the problem was like, you know, for a lot of, um, a lot, of, I think a lot of these Cosmos assets were having a little bit of a tough time getting added to centralized exchanges because, you know, centralized exchanges have all of this infrastructure. You know, if you have an ERC20, they can just press a button probably and it adds the ERC20. <laughs> but like, you know, integrating a chain, a new chain into a centralized exchange is definitely a lot more work because they have to run nodes, they have to do all this kind of stuff. Even if it's just a, like a Cosmos zone and it's using Cosmos SDK, is it still, are they so customizable that they'd have to really work on it? Well, they need to do an ETL on the data to be able to query it to, to, to determine like provenance and stuff. And so they have to index each chain separately. I see. With ETH, 
you know, there's a million ways, a million tools that auto index the different token standards. Yep. But I'm actually surprised, it's a slight tangent, but I'm surprised there isn't like someone who like does kind of these like data management for Cosmos chains. And like, do you guys see that as a problem like in the future for like people who want to do queries or like Nansen style tagging? Like, so the Cosmos SDK, we have like, we started adding Rosetta API integration. So that's like Coinbase's like mm-hmm. what that they created. But yeah, it, we definitely need people to come in and add more of this because. For example, uh, yesterday was our first reward distribution on chain and there was no, the rewards just showed up in people's accounts. And, and then people were like, oh my God, how do I explain this to my like tax person that I just got airdropped? <laughs> but, like $8,000 was dropped in my account and there's no transaction explaining why that happened. And so, th- you know, this is definitely something that like from our side, we have to be improving like the sort of events and logs that get output by the chain. And then, yeah, I think there are definitely going to be companies that come in now. And what, you know, once the DeFi is there, I think then these things are now there's an incentive to like put together all of this uh, analytics now. Let's talk a little bit about what it is to use Osmosis. I'm like from a user's perspective so that people can really understand what this is and maybe what it enables. Let's start the journey from like, the hub, the cosmos, where, where the atoms live, what would it, what would a user do from there? They have atoms. What do they do? Uh, so currently the flow is you kind of go to this osmosis website with your Kepler wallet connected and, and then you click on some assets page and you basically have an atoms field. You, if you press deposit and you know, the amount you want to deposit onto the chain, it'll do an IPC transfer underneath. So like, and so what that means is, one nice thing about Cosmos is that we do have a standard for addresses and like pub keys. So I, I, uh, I can have an address on the, uh, the Cosmos hub and I can actually have an address with the same pub key on Osmosis. So this assets button, uh, when you hit deposit, what it's going to do is it's going to like do this IBC transfer in order to move those uh, tokens from the hub onto Osmosis. So IBC is actually, I gave a TLDR earlier, but it's like like client verification of both chains. There's a lot of details to it. Like there's things called channel IDs for like allowing a chain to have multiple connections to another chain. And these look like a, a random hash basically. So what's stored on chains actually kind of like unreadable for us. What are these things? One thing we worked really hard on or like the PNFs folks worked really hard on was getting this UI to be such that uh, you don't have, the user doesn't have to ever learn about the fact that channels are underneath Mm-hmm. That you can just do this like IBC transfer right into that new zone, basically. As far as I can tell, our front end doesn't even say the word IBC anywhere. It's literally just, you know, it, it says deposit and withdraw. And like, it's mm-hmm. just supposed to mimic the UX that users are already familiar with. Well, having used Kepler to also play with this, I did have to push a button that said transfer using IBC, but I was excited to do it because I'd heard about IBC for so long and I was like, oh, cool, I get to use IBC. (laughs) By the way, I I have a question to both of you, and this is something I've asked a few times. Like you just mentioned, IBC is this like two light clients living on different zones. It's It's a rule set for transferring tokens across different blockchains, but is it a bridge? Is IBC like the makings of a bridge? And I, and I, cause I've, I've heard it lumped in, or maybe we actually, actually on the show lumped it in with bridges as a, like as a type of bridge or something, but I, I don't know what, how do you see it? Do you think of it as a bridge? Yeah, it's basically, it is a bridge. It, it is a protocol for building bridges. It's a generalized bridge protocol right now. And, and by bridge, 
depends on what you mean by bridge, right? Like if you, I don't know, I feel this is like a tautology where I'm going to say, yeah. if you mean a bridge is something that generalized to have to change talk to each other, then yes, that's what IBC is. I think bridges should be classified by how much data, like what their bus is. Like, do they need to have data availability on both sides? Do they need data mm. availability on one side? Do they only do like metadata between them? So maybe actually distinguishing in that sense would be useful. Yeah. So what IBC is, is all it knows is, hey, I, give me a light client proof that something exists in your state tree. That's all it cares about. Now you build higher level protocols on top of that. And one of them is, we call it ICS20, which is the ability to transfer tokens. And so that's like a higher level protocol built on top of IBC, where it's like, okay, what is what are we proving about your state? It's like, okay, that you locked up tokens in this like specific part of state, and then I'll accept that and then, you know, mint you tokens here. It's... Mm-hmm. You know, you can have ICSs for all sorts of things. You can just say like, oh, here's a proof that there's some Oracle data that's on the other chain and prove to me that, you know, that that Oracle data is in the state of your chain. And is that, is that classified as a bridge? I don't know. But that, that's what IBC does. The other piece of IBC that's interesting is that it just makes it so, it's just so standardized. Like the process of running a bridge is really annoying like you know because we're actually starting to run ethereum bridges on the cosmos hub soon and so as a validator you know we have to like start running ethereum nodes and all this kind of stuff but with ibc it was literally you can make a connection between two chains by sending two transactions you send a transaction on chain one and send a transaction on chain two and you have a bridge and it's like it's like just the fact that how fast and simple it is i think that's what's going to be like really game changing for ibc and one question, what's the destructor process for IBC? Like if I want to close like a, a bus of like data being sent between two chains, like I imagine it's something like you send one transaction that's like open, receive from remote chain X, remote chain X makes a transaction that's like send this data or metadata across. But when you close things, is there like a process? Is there like, yeah, what's the destructor process? Is there a lot of state on both chains? Um, so I guess we're talking about as an individual user or when we talk about the kind of the entire channel or like the bus itself. Yeah, I guess the bus itself, because I'm, I'm trying to think about like what, let's say you're in osmosis and I want to route trades between like different chains and there's like many different routes, right? I may want to like deprecate some edges in that sort of like pairs of trades that you're allowed to make because they're like inefficient or like. So I th- I could be wrong, but I believe the base IBC protocol actually doesn't really do destructors in the sense where, like, okay. if I open this bus, it's like I don't really have to actively maintain too much. Like, what I'm maintaining is, like, a last header of the other chain or, you know, a last block hash. And then uh, after some period of time, it's either it becomes too old, like, you know, weak subjectivity concerns, and then you need governance of the host chain to, like, re-update the hash. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason for this is, like, because, uh, you know, proof of stake, you have this whole weak subjectivity issue where if I'm trying to, like, glance sync to your chain and, and I it's been too long, I can't actually know, is this the real chain or not? So the IBC connections can never be closed, and that's what the IBC, you know, the, that's the header part. And then the ICS-20, those take place on the channels on top. And so... The, whether those can be closed is kind of up to the ICS where like, okay, you know, the ICS can say, okay, we have a methodology for deciding to close it to, for deprecating a channel or not. I don't believe the ICS 21 has one, but you know, you could build an ICS, ICS that has, that, that can be closed. What does, like you've used this a few times, but ICS, what does that stand for? Interchain standard. 
Okay. So you can imagine this like, uh, you know how like for normal ne uh, networking things, there's, just, you know, there's UDP and then everyone kind of builds their own, or not everyone, but a lot of people build their own protocols on top of the UDP. You know, now we're seeing quick, which is very exciting, actually getting deployed. Uh, then um, you have these things for video formats, et cetera, that are these like kind of protocols on top of UDP where it's like, okay, well, here's this one way of communicating, but me and you, we know we're going to use, we're going to send data to some more advanced format. So we can kind of do some like tricks and the structuring and coding of things to get better efficiency. And, and so that's kind of like the analogy for ICSs are where it's like, okay, well, we have this communication route called IBC, and then we can uh, build together, uh, like me and other chain can add more things on top if we want to. And the way we, and just standards for what are these more things we're building are called the ICSs or same as ERCs, right? ERCs are just standards for how smart contracts talk to each other. ICSs are going to be standards for how chains talk to each other over IBC. Awesome. That's actually a great comparison that, that helps give a good, clear picture of what that is. Yeah, actually, maybe a little bit back to osmosis. Like, how do you deal with routing across chains right now? We only do direct connections right now. So I think that, I mean... You know, this is, might be a controversial opinion, but I think that the Cosmos Hub vision of being the router for all chains is wrong. Like, I think that all chains will connect to every other chain. You'll have many to many connections. And everything will, if you want to send tokens from one chain to another, what you will end up, let's say you have a token from the th a third chain and you want to send that from A to B. Well, I think what's going to happen is they're going to unwind that first hop, and then you're going to send the next hop. I, I I really don't think connections are going to be, or assets are going to be like multi-hop. I think they're going to, most of them are going to be one hop only. I think multi-hop is in some way a premature optimization unless we get this world of like thousands of different blockchains, not, not hundreds, like actual thousands or tens of thousands. Yeah. I mean, I guess in Ethereum, it makes a lot of sense because there is, there are actually millions of tokens on Uniswap, right? Mm -hmm. And so you do actually have, have to care about this. But I guess the idea here is your best unbiased estimate for how the market develops is you're going to have a small set of Cosmos chains, like sub a thousand that you have pair to pair or like connect to hub trading, basically. Uh, yeah, like I, I think that Osmosis should be able to connect to like a thousand chains by itself. Like it shouldn't have to go through another router to do that. And if we Yeah, actually are there any limitations on size to like how many DEXs you can create? Or like it's is there like extra residence state that's sort of like common to a registry and the registry can't be too big or something like that? Um so the, actually the state for every IBC connections, not that bad. It's like it's basically what you need for uh, as a light client. So proof of stake, it's basically just last verified header. Proof of work is actually really the same thing. Uh, last final uh, header that you believe is finalized, which is not that much data. Like a header should not be more than a kilobyte. So it's like, a, can you store a kilobyte for every chain? Yeah. And you don't need to keep the history. I mean, you could just prune away anything that's older than three, three weeks or whatever the unbonding period is. Mm. Right. But you don't have to store like data per pair, right? Like it's not N squared uh, are storage. You, are you yes. talking about for osmosis, for the DEX or are you talking about for the IBC connections? For the decks, sorry, sorry, oh. for the decks. Like, what, like, how much state do you, like, I'm just curious, like, if I were to scale this, oh. like, at a million chains, would Osmosis, like, have some performance or cost degradation? At a billion mm. chains, would it have that? Or at a 10,000, you know, just to get an idea of, like, 
how to think about it relative to Ethereum DEXs where it's like, you know, there's like millions of tokens. Yeah. I mean, I think the solution is like, you know, you end up having base pairs, right? And that's just always been the solution. And so on Osmosis right now, basically there's two base pairs being used. There's half the pools are basically using Atom as a base pair and half the pools are using Osmo as a base pair. So anyway, it is permissionless. Anyone can add more base pairs, but so far no one's. There, there, there are some pools already that have been added, which is like, you know, AKT, DBPN or something. But it's like, you know, you see most of the liquidity is still concentrated on the Atom Osmo pairs. Actually, is, is anyone else doing sort of liquidity mining for providing liquidity to Osmosis pools other than the Osmosis ones themselves? Yes. Uh, well, it's going to start probably like, I, think, I don't know, it depends on when they send the transaction, either today or tomorrow. But the Akash network team is going to be adding additional incentives. And like the, the chain is designed to do this where like it's very, they just have to like put some, send the funds into a, into a contract and then it'll automatically start distributing at the same time with all the Osmo rewards. And I think there's a couple of other teams who are also like, you know, it was the AKT team. And I think there's like two or three teams that are all trying to like add in external incentives soon. You just mentioned the sort of on a smart contract is osmosis. Like, can someone deploy something onto that zone in that zone? Is it, a, is it smart contract enabled itself? Yeah, that's why I hesitated when I said the word contract. <laughs> I use okay. I use I use the term because it's like probably something that most people are familiar with. But no, it's not actually a smart contract. It's like okay. Currently, all the logic on Osmosis is like you know part of the Node code base, uh, and so you can't like add additional functionality. I guess uh, you know we're we're, we're looking into like uh, how to add more like customizability, like especially for the AMMs. Because mm. one of the core goals of Osmosis was to have very customizable AMMs. And so to do that, we're probably going to need some sort of VM. You know, we want to be like more staged in our rollout for this. And so we want to make it like more a very like restricted sort of VM where it's like, okay, you're only allowed to deploy a contract as long as it meets like the interface that we expect an AMM should have and so, that kind of thing. Yeah. And to some extent, it's like, it's really like a restriction for helping people who want to... Uh, who want to get this extra functionality, it's not like a real restriction on you. So whatever you build for a VM, it's almost certainly going to be Turing complete and you know you can hack in whatever type of functionality you want because Turing complete, just change inputs, outputs as you please. Are you actually planning on making it like a full VM or is it going to be an interpreter or something like a, mine, a tiny register, mini register machine? Like how do you think about like what the minimum viable version of this looks like? So what were we last looking at? There is this uh, new kind of VM language kind of popularized in Cosmos called Cosmwasm, um, which is uh, you, you give it this Wasm code and then, uh, so lo- and then you locally compile it to your native architecture you trust this compilation process isn't going to introduce any non-determinism across machines. So you do have, I guess it's a VM in the sense that the VM, one upon reception of code, compiles it locally and executes that compiled code. Yeah. So then it's using, I don't really know how the Wasm register system works, but then the compiled code uses your... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. no, I mean, the Wasm interpreter does have sort of some mapping to registers. I was just curious, yeah, what, where you're thinking about that, because I, I do think that problem can get hairy if you... Mm-hmm. So the reason we just want to start from actually, like, you know, uh, more interpretive code is it's actually hard to enforce any sort of API structure on the compiled code, uh, yeah. or, you know, with, with, like, trying to get security guarantees. Yes, don't look at the Solana virtual machine if you mm-hmm. want to see a bad example of this. <laughs> <laughs> Before we started using Cosmwasm for this, uh, we were actually looking at this thing called Celgo. It's by like Google and it's like this 
interpreted like non-Turing complete like math interpreter. And it's makes it's pretty easy to write like ver- like math functions into it. And that's why we're like, all right, AMMs are just math functions, right? And so let's just like use that. And then what we realize over time is AMMs are actually ha- have to be way more stateful than like we were expecting. And so that's why, you know, that the, the whole Celgo, we switched it out with like something that is more like a traditional contracting system, which is Cosmosm. I know that in the Cosmos Hub world, there's also this gravity dex. There's like a, there was a hub proposal around this. What is that and how does it relate to what you're doing? Yeah. So Gravity Dex is a, it's, it's a AMM that's being deployed on the Cosmos hub directly. Okay. Um, Osmosis and Gravity Dex kind of got birthed around the same time, like near the end of last year. Who's the team behind it? Who's, who's pushing that? It's, it's a team called Bee Harvest. Uh, they were a validator and on the Cosmos Hub. I, th- I think they actually recently got acquired by Tendermint. Okay. Weren't they doing staking derivatives at some point and then they stopped? And ZK stuff, yeah. I think. And ZK stuff. And yeah. I see. So it sounds like, sounds like a very buzzword hopping type of... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, so, and so, you know, so when we started doing Osmosis, we were like, hey, let's put this on the hub, right? Let's go build the decks for the hub. And then as we went into it, we just realized for multiple reasons that like that's just not the right way to do it. Because for one, we just want to be able to upgrade way faster. Like the cob is a very much slower thing. Our goal was like, you know, we want to be able to upgrade the chain like on a monthly basis if we wanted to. And that's just something the hub doesn't do. Because if you did it through the hub, you'd actually have to do it with voting and valid. And here you have, I guess, but like with osmosis, don't you also have to do it with the validators? Or do you do you feel like... Is there still sort of like a developer key <laughs> that lets you move no, fast? No, there's no, 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 no. There's no developer key, but <laughs> okay. it's just about the, um, the the expectations that were set. Like we've told every validator that runs on Osmosis, be like, hey, like expect to be upgrading every month. If that's not, if you're not okay with that, then like mm-hmm. please don't run a validator on Osmosis. And that's sort of like, you know, the, the hub is meant to be this more conservative chain. And Osmosis, you know, it's, it's a science lab, right? It's like we're pushing this idea that it's meant for experimentation. We're going to go just way faster. And, and then on top of that, we also just needed access to much lower level stuff. Like we can't do the threshold, the threshold decryption stuff. We need to go like change how Tendermint works a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so having our own chain is useful, is really important to like be able to move fast on those kind of things. And then finally, obviously, you know, just bootstrap a deck. You need some sort of liquidity mining scheme. And you can't, it's really hard to build a good liquidity mining scheme on an existing token like Adam that's already so distributed. Like if we're building this deck, we want it owned by the LPs, right? And make sure they're incentivized and like part of the governance process. And so the best way to do that is to issue a new token that you give to the LPs. What is the plan for a connection to Ethereum? How would that happen for osmosis? Like, I know that there's like a bridge being built, but wasn't that bridge between the hub and Ethereum? Yeah. So there's a there's a team called Althea. Uh, yeah. They're putting together something called Gravity Bridge, which okay. is. I think I was uh, mixing those up, actually. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's why. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's confusing though because it's called Gravity Dex and Gravity Bridge. Um, yes. And okay. So Gravity Bridge is this like bridge from. A Cosmos SDK chain to Ethereum, and so it's like it's it's the name of the software, and then the hub is planning on deploying it uh, to connect to Ethereum, and th- but then you know different chains can deploy it as well. For example, Somalier, actually, which is Zaki's project, they also are using Gravity Bridge, but they're adding in more extensions on top of it as well. So you guys, Osmosis, would just deploy the Gravity Bridge potentially. 
Potentially. So, I mean, the original idea was we wanted to just go ahead and use uh, the gravity bridge of the Cosmos hub. But okay. we're a little bit worried right now about like the credible neutrality of the Cosmos hub, because if you have like this, this is kind of what I've always been pushing, where it's like, hey, guys, don't put this DEX on the hub because you're going to like harm the new, like imagine Ethereum foundation built their own native DEX. Like would people have built DEXs on top of Ethereum? Probably not. So I don't know. I think that hopefully like they remove gravity deck spins off onto its own chain eventually. And then osmosis would be happy to use the gravity bridge of the hub, but we'll see. And if not, and maybe we just end up deploying our own. And uh, you know, there is some precedent for this. Vitalik did basically write on the Uniswap forum. Hey, you should just copy Uma. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) And like, I, I feel like Uma sentiment has not quite recovered since that yeah i like tweeted that where i was like all right so yeah it, it was literally just like he was saying copy Uma. it was really really very interesting more or less i mean yeah. with without without you know in more polite terms perhaps yeah it's just like well uma sucks at liquidity so uniswap you should just copy them was basically the tldr <laughs> you have high market cap uh you just do all the good ideas <laughs> So I want to go back a little bit to the this user journey. We started on that user journey. We got them using Kepler, sending something over IBC. But I want to go back to like, what happens when someone arrives in Osmosis? Like, what do you do there? Um, It's kind of like, what do you want to do? So uh, this decks now have the ability to like add liquidity, to, you know, stake your tokens or to trade on the decks. It's kind of permissionless manner. It, it, it has... The same functionality as like, you know, you can imagine on Uniswap today, you know, there's three buttons at the top, right? There's like the, there's the trade pool and like govern or something. I think they have gov, right? But that's a slight difference is that because it's a proof of stake chain of its own, it's all, that's what's kind of a little different, at least when I was looking at the interface where it, it also looks like the interface of any proof of stake network where you're actually like, you know, using voting, you're yep. using, you're staking, you're adding liquidity and you're trade. Like that, I guess it's the liquidity adding and the staking in the same interface that I hadn't seen before. Yeah. Well, I guess, I guess I have seen it when you have these, like I know Ave, you can stake as well, but I guess yeah. I know that in this case, there, there's actually an underlying blockchain. And so you're validating when you're staking with somebody, you're actually like validating this whole blockchain. We, yeah, you know, right now there's like two options, you know, if you have Osmo, right, you can go like LP it or you could go stake it. And this is sort of like a choice mm-hmm. that you have to make right now. But over time, we're actually going to make these, these two things are going to become more and more combined. So we're working on something called, um, codenamed right now called reverse staking derivatives. We'll probably come up with a better name. I, I think super fluid staking. I think, I think. What? <laughs> <laughs> So here's why it's called reverse. Now you sound, do you realize do you realize that your your choice of naming makes you sound like boring tradfi people I, I, because like <laughs> repurchase agreements are sort of like staking agreements <laughs> and reverse repo is like when the central bank kind of does the opposite. Now you sound, sound like you need like a new name. A <laughs> we'll have a new name. Don't worry, I, I'm working okay, on the name. Okay. But 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 here's okay. it's not it's it's like a little too like tradfi for you. Yeah, that's all, yeah. That's all I, I, no, I, I completely agree. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm liking the term "super fluid" somehow, and I want to use that because you know I think I, I think it comes from Dan Ellinger. Yeah. He gets, I guess, he gets credit for that, right? Yeah. So another reason is, yeah, because I, I really love Dan's like post, and it's basically based off of that. So let me explain what it is first. So what it is is in normal staking derivatives, like what, and it's also usually called liquid staking. What people are mm-hmm. proposing is you go ahead and you know you stake your coins, 
you get back some sort of derivative asset, like, you know, like you an at, IOU to that. Yeah. yeah. And then you go use that asset in DeFi. But the problem is, this is breaks the entire security model of proof of stake, right? Like we, yeah. we spent all this time designing proof of stake and all this lockups and everything. And this is like undoes it. So the reason it's I've been calling it reverse is we're putting this in the opposite direction. What if we take our staking coin, use it in DeFi, take our DeFi assets and stake them? So in this example, what it, for Osmosis specifically, it would be imagine you have Osmo and you know something else, Bitcoin. You add it to the liquidity pool, you get back an LP share, and this LP share has some underlying Osmo value. Like if you were to withdraw it, you could get out a certain amount of Osmo. And so now we're saying, well, let's just go ahead and stake this LP share and have it be treated as the underlying Osmo value. And you, you know, the, qu- the chain can query this every single block if it wants to. Like say, what is the conversion between this LP share and the Osmo? Obviously, it wouldn't be like every pool can do this because that would get out of hand. But you know, the chain can basically vote to say, all right, these pools their LP shares are allowed to be staked. And so now if you LP, now you can be both LPing and staking at the same time. And obviously a lot of this is actually heavily inspired from Tarun's work as well, where like he has a whole thing about like how you can borrow against LP shares. Yeah, that's cool. Just needs a better name. Hey, I thought like, like this name Superfluid has problem, right? You know, Superfluids are nice. There's zero friction. Yeah. But if you stake, you know, yeah, there's 14 super day on... You, you know, there's also Super Solid, oh, which oh. is... Uh, it's actually been very hard to construct these things. Th- this is why I left physics. Like it just took ten years to fucking resolve this thing. <laughs> but there was a there was this guy who claimed to have made super solid helium oh, four, wow. and uh, super solids are like interesting. Like super fluids have no friction, but they kind of rotate forever, mm-hmm. kind of like almost perpetual motion mm-hmm. machine. Like super solids are like super liquids, except imagine an ice cube in a little circle. And you push it, and then it just rotates forever. Hmm. But it stays as an ice cube; it doesn't melt, or it doesn't like have all, all the atoms are like basically. So, anyway, sorry, slight tangent, but mm-hmm. you may you may want to like look into names like that. <laughs> I'll, look, I'll look into super solid, but uh, super fluid's cool because it's like you know liquid staking. This is super fluid staking, and then it's like it, it is taking Dan's idea of like okay, using the same collateral for many things, and that is yeah. literally what we're trying to do here. I wonder if any layer one would would do this. Like, a, I mean, not saying that you aren't. I just mean like one that is like. I, I mean, I, I want to be able to expand this to more and more DeFi assets. I mean, ironically, I think LP shares are probably one of the harder ones to start with, but it's what our chain is. But like, you can imagine it's much easier to do this with something like you know, a, like C Osmo, like Compound. Os- if you had Osmo on Compound, it's much easier to take that C asset and have that be staked. Uh, LP shares are probably much harder because of the impermanence loss and all that kind of thing. I, I think there's like a whole new like paradigm here that can be done where like how we can generalize this and like have it be used for like many, all these like different DeFi assets that are based on Osmo can still be used to stake. The main like hard question here is how does the chain reason about uh, the risk premium it should be taking? Like, you know, one compound Osmo say should not really be worth, I suppose it's one Osmo's collateral for, for this, should not be worth a full Osmo because... There's some correlated uh, concerns here, right? Like there's a liquidation that's not caught in time. And it can actually not be withdrawn for full also back. It can only be, maybe it's 0.9. And how do you reason about this as chain governance? Seems actually pretty hard. You have a validator set of your own. That's the security of the osmosis chain. But is there any shared security at all between you and any of the like tokens that are coming across IBC or is this completely separate? 
Right now, there's no show security. I mean, this is also kind of why I was upset about Gravity Dex, because I was like, guys, you guys should be working on shared security. We need to use it. Uh, but mm. at the moment, yeah, Osmosis is just self-sovereign, and all the chains are other chains are also self-sovereign. Yeah. Does this not bring up that issue or that fear of like, if there is a corrupt zone and it has deployed IBC and it starts to trade with other IBC enabled token, like assets, but it's corrupt. So like it's bullshit. Could that somehow taint or like screw up some of these trades? Like basically like minting mm-hmm. things that aren't there and like having some, you know, it, could it, could it be a rug pull at some point? I, I don't think so because only the people who hold or who are exposed to the asset from that chain are the ones who are affected, right? Because if let's say you hold atoms on osmosis and then this other chain goes corrupt, they can't do anything to atoms. What, what they could do is they could go ahead and mint infinite of the other token and then drain the liquidity pools and take yeah. out all the atoms. So that, uh, yes, but as being an LP of a pool with that token, you, you're still exposed to that. And so if you're exposed to it, you're basically, ex- you're, you're, it's the same as having held the token on the other originating chain itself, right? Like You're saying like the atoms, like the other assets wouldn't be affected. Like those chains wouldn't be affected, but the LP tokens in osmosis and the LP token holders would be if they had that corrupt one. Only for the people of that pool. Like to phrase it a bit differently, it, it, it is a fear if you in the kind of earlier overview IBC we were giving, but there's a separate thing in IBC that says that, uh, you know, basically tokens from one zone, originating from one zone, can't be confused with tokens originating from another zone. So, like, only tokens that are from there could have this kind of confusion. So, like, I don't know, zone C could not mint atoms, or they can mint some tokens localized to their chain. I mean, it has the same like you know, name because names are uh, they're internally namespaced, but it can't be confused on Osmosis or another chain as though it's from the hub. Goal of ICS twenty and the styles of ICSs that we want to design are such that we want to localize anything that like any chain failure. It should be localized to people who are like exposed to that chain. It, like they chose. They have to be yeah. opt opt in, right? I want to now ask a question about like, what is an asset on osmosis though? Like I'm just realizing like, it's not that the atoms are actually on osmosis. They're just derivatives of atoms like through IBC. Right. And so you'd have derivatives of this crappy chain. Would there be any way to block it? Like if that happened somehow, I mean, I I don't know, maybe that's impossible or any way to gauge, like if all of a sudden there's like this flood of seemingly like more tokens than there should be coming into osmosis from this corrupt chain, would there be any like signifier to stop that? So there is one safeguard thus far that's already like deployed, which is that suppose I sent over the hub sent over a thousand atoms to Osmosis. If there was a bug and Osmosis had like some corruption, it could not send back one thousand and one atoms. Okay. The the hub keeps track that we had one thousand tokens flowing out this way, and so you can only send back a thousand. But then you know the the, the chain the zone you sent to could do some still do attacks for like changing who owns it, but they could never mint more. And there, there's some ideas for like boosting this where it's like, okay, maybe we want to rate limit transfer uh, transfers back and forth uh, for some reason, because uh, you know, it gives you time to catch a failure. Some ideas for doing some more tracking of like whale addresses or something, but these aren't, these are still very much in like kind of spec phase and not, they're not such that they're always good. Whereas for this one of like ensuring this max supply per, per uh, zone, maximally sent back to me, that one's like 
deployed everywhere. So there's almost like no reason yeah. to not have that. So like basically, because of this like restriction, if you're one of like the boomers who is keeping your atoms on the Cosmos Hub and not bring them to Osmosis, <laughs> you will not be affected if Osmosis like fails for some reason. Like it, only the people who actively chose to bring atoms into Osmosis will be affected. Got it. And and remember, this is true. This is true in Ethland too, right? Mm-hmm. That's why if you Uniswap moved completely to West, and so once they did that, it basically meant that you have the exact same issue, right? If if West failed, then like yeah, goodbye, yeah, everything. And that's not just Uniswap. So all the AMMCs West, yeah, uh, except Curve, but that's because it's using stable, mainly stable. I guess the fact that atoms are one of like the two base pairs right now, Osmosis should could be worried of like if if the Cosmos Hub gets corrupted. Almost all the or half the pools are like based on atoms, and if you could just mint infinite atoms right now, yeah, you could drain like half the pools. So, but I guess your assumption here is the security model there is decent enough to make that your yeah yeah your base yeah. for now. If we get back to kind of like some of the biggest problems with AMMs and constant function market makers in general, it's sort of the problem of sandwich attacks and other things, but I guess that's like the most prominent one. And that brings us to sort of MEV or minor extractable value or VEV, validator extractable value. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, both of these terms are uh, are kind of uh, MEV and VEV mm-hmm. would annoy physicists if they <laughs> saw them. But, uh, <laughs> one is vacuum expectation value and the other is like mega electron volts. Um, <laughs> or but- milli electron volts. Or milli electron volt. Yeah, it's just that usually whenever you're measuring an electron volts, it's like, needs to be giganto. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but, you know, uh, one interesting thing is I think there's been this kind of huge philosophical debate about MEV. Does it have to exist? Can we actually really find a cryptographic solution? Should we bother trying or should we only have an economic solution? This, of course, led to this very public fight between Phil Dian and his advisor, uh, which, you know, usually in academia, this people don't get along with their advisor, but it's usually their advisor just shits on them at conferences. But <laughs> here it's like his advisor is like writing this public news article being like, my student sucks effectively. Yep. Uh, and so you're on a very particular side of this argument. So I think it'd be really great to hear your views, what influences why you think it is sort of like the way you believe. And then I'm framing it openly. Yeah. So you maybe, can, yeah, maybe you can... do explain both sides too <laughs> for our listeners might be helpful. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, for content, I definitely agree with uh, uh, his advice is Ari, right? Ari Jules? Yes. Yeah. So I, I definitely agree with Ari on this one. Yeah. Let me explain the, the situation first. So what is MEV, minor extractable value? What it is, is it's the idea that whoever the block proposer is. So in proof of stake, it's validators and proof of work, it's miners. The block proposer has certain powers that like no one else has, and they can like use those powers in order to extract value, right? And, and like get some edge. AKA front run. Front, front running is one. I actually, in my classification of MEV, I would include things like time jacking. Like, or like, remember like, you know, those like things where it's like, oh, you get back when people used to use the timestamp as a source of randomness mm. in Ethereum. It's like, okay, if you manipulate that, that I consider that minor extractable value. Like anything that the miner can do is part of it. Now, front running is probably the biggest class of uh, MEV attacks. Before that, there's what I call a transaction ordering slash censorship attacks, which is the idea that like the proposer can choose what gets included in a block and what order they're included in a block. And, and so within this, there's two categorizations. 
I call it absolute positioning and relative positioning. Absolute positioning is just saying that, you know, you're not trying to base yourself off of other transactions in a block. You're just trying to have some absolute position in a block. And this would be something like if there's liquidations happening, right? And someone has to be the one to trigger the liquidation and they get some profit by doing so. The block proposer is able to say, guarantee that they will be the first one in the block, right? And that way they can always, you know, they're guaranteed that's extractable value. Mm -hmm. And this type of MEV, I mean, you know, we have ideas for how to restrict it. uh, And, you know, but it's not what we're focused on at the moment. You know, maybe we'll come to that in the future. And I think that there, there's actually a reasonable philosophical argument. You know, I think there's a good debate to be had there where it's like, okay, someone has to be doing these liquidations um, and they're not like extracting value from anyone. It's, it is really a positive something where they're like doing some, they're performing a service for the network and they're just like, you know, sort of making sure they, they get to be the ones to do it and profit from it. But it's not, they're not actively harming anyone else. But then there's the other form, which is what I call relative front running, where like you're trying to base your transactions position off of someone else's transaction. And so this is what like sandwich attacks would be like that, where like you see a trade coming in, a big trade, you know, you could go ahead and pump up the value or yeah, push down, do something to the price and then you can like profit from it. And for this, I really do not see how there's like a strong like argument to be made that this is ethical or like, I, I just don't see it this is like a privacy concern to me, right? I, I really do see this relative front running as a privacy concern more than anything else. It's like, if I'm able to hide what I'm about to do, I should be uh, doing that. And so the threshold decryption solution that we're building is really meant to address that relative front running. And, and so to your point about like, Phil, like I, honestly, I don't understand where, where they're coming from right now. Like he had in his like MEV, what do blog post? He's like, there's, there's a project called Equitas and they do like a bunch of like, they're focused more on the absolute front running, I think, or they're not no, really, really they're, both. They're, 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 yeah, they're, they're, they're taking a different solution. We're taking like a privacy focused solution on front running. They're taking a more like fair ordering solution, which, you know, okay. they, they have some ideas there, but Phil like puts this like chart and in the Equitas thing, they have like a four or five different like parameterizations of their protocol and each of them have different outputs. And he's like, well, you know, which of these should we do? They all have trade-offs. How can we decide? And then it's like, Phil, every single one of those are better than what's going on currently. You can't be like, oh, there's too many choices that are better than the current to be like a reason not to fix what's going on right now. Mm. What is the philosophy of flashbots though, in, in regards to that? Like why, what is the, what's the difference? Like what you're describing is how they're critiquing this, these models, but yeah, wh- what are they doing? Okay. So front running and MEV, there's like there's like the MEV itself, there's value being extracted from users. And then there's side effects to MEV, right? And this is like the insane, like the gas spikes and the like, you know, consensus instability and all this kind of stuff that happens from side effects of MEV. And I think the Flashbots team is really focused on minimizing the side effects of MEV, but they're not actually focused on tackling the MEV itself. Uh, I think you know, this has been an understatement. Right? For things like sandwiching, it does fix that, where you imagine you have this layer of all these transactions are encrypted via this, like, centralized three SGXs. Which so is then, not right now, by the way. Oh, so They don't use SGX right now. They just send to miners. Oh. Yeah. No, no, no. There's no... It, now, for, for the record, and, and there's a lot of controversy about this today on the Flashbots Discord yeah. and Twitter, uh, they are extremely centralized service that is attempting to decentralize via SGX or... Potentially some other routes 
but they already have like spam issues because they only have like three nodes and they're they haven't quite they're they're running into like basically civil resistance issues right now. Oh, this is the whole reputation thing, right? Yes, yes, yeah. So wait, but like, so they were thinking of using SGX, but are they using SGX to perform the same kind of thing that you wanted to do with threshold cryptography, like create a private yeah. area where people can't see what's coming next yes. and therefore not do the sandwich? The auction should be private. So there's an auction that takes place, although it's, it's kind of a, oh, they, yeah. they solve the auction greedily. So it's not like the optimal solution when there's multiple things mm. presented right now. And that that's also led to some attacks against it. But if the auction is private, then like no one can kind of see who the the winning sandwicher is or like try to front run them right before. And right now it's kept private by they run the node and you effectively oh. trust them on that. But yeah, so if you trust there that they run the node, you don't really have details of how much sandwich opportunity is there. Like you don't get to read everyone else's transaction before you get to make your bid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they act as the privacy entity. Yeah. They, okay. They, yeah, effectively right now. And obviously for a variety of reasons, some legal, some philosophical, some economical, you really want to not be centralized, but they wanted to get to market really quickly. And to be fair, like they were able to aggregate an insane amount of hash power because of that, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, because they were the first ones to do it. And they also didn't, these cryptographic, mechanisms are are quite unproven in practice and production mm-hmm. like that that's the real it's like snarks like are we really sure we're ready to like actually deploy this on like hundreds of billions of dollars probably not mm-hmm. to give them credit you know I, I believe part of their roadmap is they want to use the sgx to become this sort of private mempool over time mm-hmm. that each miner can just have their own SGX based mempool and normal users can use this. So there's a, there's something called mist X right now, which is like, it's a, it's like a overlay on top of Uniswap which like it uses the flashbot system. And so, like I said, no SGX right now, but eventually if they just do, do SGX, you know, you could use that as a way of like creating a mi- private mempool. Normal users could submit transactions privately, but then we have all these reasons why SGX doesn't work. So uh, Dave can maybe go into that a bit. Yeah, I mean, uh, SGX is kind of, what it's doing is it's saying, okay, here's this uh, compute device. Which, Enclave. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I th- actually, I would say, like, I think our listeners probably know the SGX battle okay. at this point. Okay. <laughs> Pretty well. Like, it's yeah. a trusted Enclave. There could be a backdoor. I, I guess the main, whole. well, the thing that we actually are, is for us, it's like, what is the security budget here, right? It's like, okay, how much will it cost you to break an STX? Maybe it'll cost $10 million. You hire a team of 10 top-notch engineer or like researchers and you know, give them a year, they could probably break it, right? And it's like, okay, well, MEV is so much more than $10 million right now. And it's like, it'll, it's worth it to break I, the SGX. I have a feeling breaking SGX might be a bit more expensive than uh, that. It depends on what you mean, right? Break, right? Because there are, um, what you need is you just need to get the key out of one. And we see like, or, or take one, get one to be able to uh, do whatever you want. Like you just need to break one SGX. That's it. You just need to get the key out of one. And now you're able to de-anonymize the entire mempool. Let's shift here because I want to talk about the threshold cryptography. Cause like that, you, you know, going back to the beginning of the episode, that was like one of the core ideas you had and something that I, as far as I know, is not yet in osmosis, but mm. will be eventually. I hope. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Okay. So let's talk about what, like, what does that do exactly? And I know, like, we don't have 
too much time in the episode left. And I will point people at a video and like a talk that you gave recently at a ZKV event that we did. So there is like some other documentation on that. But yeah, tell us, how does threshold cryptography actually help with MEV? Sure. If all transactions are encrypted before they get into a block, then that means if I'm someone on the P2P layer, I can't know what's about to be in a block, therefore, or I can't see what the actual content is here. So I can't front run it. I can't do any of this content-aware uh, algorithms, which is like what sandwiching is. So if it's fully blind, then it gets into a block, block gets finalized, then it gets decrypted, and the decryption process is kind of trustless. I'll get back to that in a second. Then we know that I had no front-running possible, or no relative front-running possible. So the flow is then uh, I split an encrypted transaction. It gossips around, um, but the fee part's public. Miners use the fee, uh, check there's a fee enough for this amount of bytes, then they uh, get into a block, the encrypted blob into a block, block gets finalized, sometime later, transaction gets decrypted, hmm. and then executed. This prevents anyone from front-running me, because before it was finalized, all they got to see was an encrypted blob. Yes. And this is this private aspect, adding privacy at the point of, like in the mempool, I guess, so that like ordering cannot mm -hmm. be changed or you can't see something and try to get in front of it. Does it, is it super different when it moves from proof of work to proof of stake? Is there any like difference in the proof of stake world for this? The big difference is around finality. So all proof of work algorithms fundamentally have um, some probabilistic finality. Or you kind of try to overlay some, at some degree, we just call this probability sufficiently negligible and call it deterministic. Whereas in the proof of stake world, uh, we, some chains have uh, guaranteed finality, some don't. So the key thing is, uh, it depends on your solution, but to get like max security, you want it to be decrypted after finalization. But to some extent, that's maybe uh, not needed in that, like, suppose we have this, the 1% case happens where, you know, got some rollback. Okay, yes. It's happened on Ethereum, by the way. Someone reorged and took something that was like a Flashbotch bundle. Once it got, you know, revealed, they reorged and used it. And so if it gets sufficiently bad, then you could have, uh, in this publicity finality, you know, someone might say, okay, it's worth it for me to try to attack this. But at least you're still getting protection most of the time. But when you have guaranteed finality, you can kind of make stronger claims that we're always getting it given our security assumption holds. And then you kind of have multiple solutions for how do you encrypt at the mempool layer? One is SGXs, one is this thing called time lock crypto, where it's like, okay, I'm going to make an encrypted transaction and then anyone trustlessly can decrypt it after running some sequential process on an ASIC for a few minutes. The third one, which I think we think is the best, is like threshold uh, decryption, where you have some committee with some weights and they like collectively can decrypt a transaction, like where we all two thirds of us come together do some things together, and then we can get the uh, plain text out. And so that assumption is pretty similar to what is the tenement proof of stake assumption, which is that, okay, well, if two thirds of nodes, we trust them all like collectively, or rather, we, yeah, we trust two thirds collectively to be act honestly, whereas if they didn't act honestly, we could detect it and uh, you know, slash them. So if we make this trust assumption, then uh, we can get this uh, decryption. We trust them to like do this properly. Well, that's one of the things with the threshold thing is you do need a committee. And that's why it makes a lot of sense in proof of stake, or at least in Tendermint-esque proof of stake, because we have an obvious committee to give this job to. Time lock probably makes more sense if you don't have a committee to give this to. But 
time lock has all these like UX concerns with it, where like, you know, you need to make sure the time locking process is sufficiently long such that it doesn't get decrypted in the mempool. Uh, you need to make sure that like everyone has to be using the time lock crypto. Like in threshold, you can, it's kind of an optional thing. You don't have to, there's no reason if you don't want to be threshold encrypted, you don't have to, but like in time lock, it doesn't work like that. You need everyone to be using that system. If, as long as you're okay with having a committee, which obviously we are in Tendermint, Threshold is by far like the proper way to do it. Well, as I mentioned mean, from earlier, we have to empirically validate like, you know, there is extra bandwidth happening. We think, so preliminary things, we think that the bandwidth is going to be fine, but like, yeah, we do have to wait till we see it. Empiricism does uh, have some value. And so that's like, you know, let's wait till we see that the bandwidth empirically like was not a problem. I mean, I think the, you know, the main thing is just, you know, does the latency affect UX effectively? Like in the long run, do you think that's a valid trade-off for the end user? So it's actually like the latency shouldn't be uh, much worse. Uh, given you know, given span assumptions, it shouldn't be much worse than what's going on today on Osmosis, which is the sense that uh, your block currently is executed after it's finalized, but we can engineer the uh, threshold encryption so that it it's done kind of as soon as the block is finalized as well. Yeah. You know, Tendermint already sort of pipelines where, unlike Ethereum, where it's... Uh, I see, I see. You're going to overlap the validators voting on the mempool. Do you separate inclusion and ordering? Do they vote separately on, like, the set of transactions included versus the order? No, a proposer includes them, and then they just vote on the ordering that the proposer did. So we're actually building something called vote extension, which is, like, we, we proposed that our team proposed this to Tendermint. We're, we're, we're extending, like, the functionality that Tendermint has. And with vote extensions, you can have every validator contribute additional data along with their consensus vote. So this is where the decryption shares are going to be shared. So that's how we have them happen at the same time. And the other one that we also want to do eventually is actually do, you have to help me come up with a better name for this one as well. Oh, no. uh, This was called... Oh, joint proposals. No, it's kind of a lame name. We need a better name. But uh, that, that, that's also, instead of being TradFi, you now sound like you're like the, at the Pentagon, like the joint piece of staff. <laughs> but yeah, so the joint proposals idea is just saying that like every validator can just include a couple of transactions in their vote. And then the next proposer is required to at least include those transactions in their proposal. And then you know, it's okay if they overlap a little bit, but they include those and then they can add in more if they want. But it's like, they have to at least include the ones that the validators add in. So that way it, it prevents it. So one proposer isn't the only one who has access to, you know, inclusion. All the validators can contribute to inclusion a little bit. It's actually kind of an interesting sense of uh, both in terms of the idea we talked about earlier, about there's different proposer powers. Like one of them is choosing absolute order transactions. And the second is uh, kind of for censorship reasons. Like if you have all the validators getting to collectively add things to a block, you now just need, in some real sense, you as long as one, at least a third of them aren't uh, trying to censor you, your transactions should be able to get it. Going back to like, you know, what how we defined MEV, which is like the power that a single proposer has, you know, the way I guess we think about MEV and solving it is move as much of that power to requiring a two-thirds threshold. Mm. So our threshold decryption is a system that takes, okay, one proposer can't do it. You know, you need two-thirds of colluding validators to do something. Or uh, same thing with this, like, joint proposals, right? Like, one proposal doesn't control inclusion. You need two-thirds of validators to, like... Do you think this can ever scale to more than a 1,000 validators? Uh, There's some inherent, like... uh... And squareds in here. Well, the yes, that might be called right. like, like log ends if we're lucky. 
Well, I just feel like you have n squareds, but you're making the constant factor potentially a lot bigger as n gets larger by adding in the ordering. But do you need a thousand validators? Like, is that a goal of the project? Hey, don't don't read any ETH2 marketing material. <laughs> <laughs> well, the main N squared is still just from the bandwidth side and like the P2P stuff. But I, as far as I can tell, the threshold side should not have any N squared. Uh, what are you doing the key setups part? Okay, the DKG, yeah. yes. The DKG is the hard part. Yeah. That's sort of, we're working with the uh, Anoma team actually to like collaborate to put together like a, a DKG that will suffice for what we're trying to do. But yeah, so, so you're right, the DKG is the so, bottleneck. Yeah, it's actually not or- ordering here. This is even n squared. But if we don't talk about fair ordering, I don't know if we want to. But actually, one of my problems with fair ordering in sense is the sense that uh, you, does fair ordering doesn't really move you to this two thirds assumption. The sense that uh, you're kind of relying on some mempool information to do this, but you have no auditability here. Where if I lie, no one can detect me lying. It's very hard to detect. So we have to assume that just two thirds aren't lying. Or some proof of stake, you know, we've come to this two-thirds assumption because suppose two-thirds do act dishonestly, I can, like, make a, uh, a double sign evidence and slash you. But doing this at the, for fair ordering is actually really complex. Like, you, or complex in the sense that you need to dump a lot of data from your, like, you have to add a lot of extra bandwidth. That's n squareds again. And for all full nodes as well to in order to get these proofs. And it's kind of like why we also dream of, instead of, like, fair ordering, maybe moves random ordering hmm. where we try to, we try to say like a proposer can kind of have some influence of choosing encrypted datas within a block, but not even their order that orders randomized somehow. Osmosis is live. It's been live. I mean, as of recording, I know this is going to come out in a few weeks, but as of recording, it's been live for about a week. Like how, how have you distributed tokens? What does this project look like? And yeah, should people actually know about, because I, I don't know that everyone who has atoms knows about this. Yep. So, you know, the goal was we wanted this native token and distribute it to all the LPs and people contributing to the protocol. And this is sort of what, you know, look at, you know, all uni distribution, valid distribution, everyone does this. And, and, you know, they show that, like, okay, look, at like, after four years, this is what the decentralized distribution will look like or whatever. But at T equals zero, it actually extremely centralized where like the team basically owns all the tokens. And that just does not work for proof of stake, right? Because you need to have a decentralized distribution from T equals zero. And so this is why we did this like airdrop to atom holders to be like, okay, here's like your guys' like invitation to come part, be part of osmosis and contribute. But it also helps us get this distribution. And I don't know, I think it worked really well, actually. So I don't know, I've, people keep saying that airdrops are dead, but I don't know. I, looking at what, what happened with osmosis, I, I don't think that's true. I think it's because of how we did it. So what, one of the cool things we did was we invented something called a quadratic fair drop. And so what that means is uh, we actually airdrop to people based off of the square root of the number of coins in their account. So obviously we can't, you know, we couldn't tell people about it beforehand. Otherwise people would split. But this was a nice like little thing where it's like what we expect is obviously it's like, you know, the Adam whales are going to be getting the whale share of the LP rewards. So we wanted to put more weighted toward the smaller Adam holders as well. And that's the point of doing that quadratic nature. So maybe this is another sort of a philosophically question, mm-hmm. but do you think it's possible to make a fair distribution mechanism where the issuers don't hide information about the mechanism? Mm. I'm currently pretty sus about this because uh, it almost feels like if you mean if the definition of fair is like it's based off identity, 
And until there's some like real decentralized identity schemes that we trust or reputation networks, then I, I always have this fear of sibling yeah. or like trying to game the identity yeah. system. So until we have identity or reputation networks that we are pretty happy with, I, I don't see how you do it for when the definition of fair is based off of uh, like are you distinct humans? Right. I, I just mean, like, do you think there's, like, an impossibility result to that? I, I don't know. I, I actually have not thought about this much. But I think that there's, like, wh- what about, like, uh, off of people's DGEN score, right? Like, well, you could do an airdrop of well, that. Well, now you're trusting the DGEN score creator, though. Yeah, yeah. Who, who of course, is now incentivized to, to pay for play for oh. DGEN scores, right? Right, right. I have to think about it, but I, I, I'm, <laughs> I, I've never thought about this question before. And so I think that's it. Sorry, it was, it was a little out of left field, but I thought <laughs> it was like because you mentioned on that you guys purposely hid this so that like people wouldn't sp- like do all yeah. this stuff. It was kind of like, oh, well, if you just make a tiny extension, like maybe yeah. it's just impossible to do without doing that. I, I, I think I disagree in the sense that... Uh, it depends what what is identity you want to be rewarding or what what's fair. Like if I choose something sufficiently easy, like suppose you uh, passport holders of some country, and then uh, as long as there's some or there's some database I can use to verify a passport, like that would work. This is when we try to go to these decentralized net definitions of fair that it gets much harder. But I think if we had some web trust like model or robust reputation networks, there's a tweet sitting in my drafts which says, Dex. Front-running resistance, privacy, web of trust, my five-year plan. So, oh. you know. <laughs> <laughs> but but the, the there's a turtles all the way down recursive question here, which is can you bootstrap the identity or, or web of trust without having some secret information oh. or randomness? Yeah, so, okay, this is going to go such a derail. <laughs> I, so I built a web of trust. Sorry, Henrik, in advance. <laughs> I built a web of trust at a hackathon like three years ago and it was like, you know, we won. Hasib was the judge actually. And he's like, wow, this is cool question. What's the incentives? Like, why would anyone do this? And I'm like, good question. I don't know. And it took me like three years to figure it out until, and I solved it when I saw circles circles is circles, UBI. I don't know if you've had them on or no, I haven't not, actually. Like no. you should have them on. Okay. Coolest project. Most underrated. Well, the problem no, is no, no, no. you had Martin on. Oh, from Gnosis? Compliment. We didn't talk about yeah, it. So, I didn't know he's fine and known yeah, about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's just, it's just like side project. Okay. But what it is, is it's like they, they built this like decentralized UBI that's based off of a web of trust. But yeah. I think they're too focused on the UBI side of it right now. What I don't think what they realized is that they just created an incentivized web of trust. And, and a decentralized incentivized web of trust. And like they... And the problem, the, the way that they designed it is it's, they parameterize it in such a way that they're trying to build a UBI. But like, if you re-parameterize it to be this, like, you know, incentivize early adopters and yada, 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 I think you can actually build a proper web of trust that's like very hard to game. And like, I think, I think there's something really cool that can be done there. And that's why like the web of trust, you know, I think there's a lot of privacy things that need to go into making a web of trust work properly. And that's why it's the last on the list. Um, okay. What... The heck is Ion? I feel like everyone's asking. <laughs> so Ion is this token that is in Osmosis, and it has a very similar graphical depiction as Osmo, the native token, and no one knows what it is. Do you guys know what it is? I don't know what it is either. You don't know what it is either? Uh, like, I, yeah, I... <laughs> I don't know what it is either. It just just happened. It just randomly happened? 
Okay. I, I woke up one day and it's like, wow, I made this GitHub commit at 4 a.m. I don't know what I was doing last <laughs> night, but like, all right, I guess this is a thing now. Oh, really? Okay. So is this, you don't know well, what it well, is? Like, don't blow up Sunny's spot as a magician, all right? <laughs> Ah. He's like he he has he has some psychological like I code in my sleep impairment <laughs> and that he just like he just doesn't want he just doesn't want the world to know. Ah. I, I think I think it's really cool to see what the community is going to try to do with it. Like okay. I think that there I think there's like an entire Ion community right now, and I think they're trying to figure <laughs> out like what is this thing? You know yeah. how can we how can we? I think there's a lot of people drafting governance proposals for like adding utility to Ions but in a way that's very like uh, symbiotic with like Osmo as well and, and with Atoms. And like, I think there's like, I, I had this like tweet that I tweeted earlier, which was like the father, the son and the Holy spirit. It's like Adams, Osmo oh, and Adam. Ion. And it's like, the, what is <laughs> okay. the Holy spirit? I, you know, I spent time. I, I think I like went through the Wikipedia page yesterday of the Holy spirit. And I still don't understand what it is. Sonny is going to be a cult leader, and Ion is the entry to his cult. You have to own, you must own this much Ion to join the Sonny cult. <laughs> I'm, I'm working with the Commonwealth team right now. To th- the Commonwealth team, uh, they're actually building like a forum for osmosis where like LP, like pool specific forums. So like people are LP, they can chat there. But I also asked them to like, hey, can you make a telegram group that's like limited by who's like only by ion ownership? <laughs> Whoa. If, if only we had tell the telegram open network. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Could have All right. So Dave, Sonny, Tarun, Thanks so much for coming here and having this conversation, exploring osmosis. This has been super interesting and very excited about the project. And congratulations for launching it so smoothly. And I mean, at least from where I was sitting, it looks like it's going really great. So thank you so much. Yeah, you you guys inspired me to write some shit posts. (laughs) 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 Woohoo. Cool. All right. So I want to say thank you to Andre, the podcast producer, Henrik, the podcast editor, and to our listeners. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.